If, if yours don't, it's time for Children's Church, so they're headed out that way. Uh, there's a nursery over there as well if you need that, and in uh, a cry room in the back if you just want to hang out back there with your, with your little ones. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. We're glad that, that you're here. If you're visiting with us, we're especially glad uh, that you have joined us today and hope you're, you're blessed uh, by your time with us in worship. Uh, so we're wrapping up our, our, our series this morning entitled Rich. We certainly haven't touched on, on everything that Jesus talks about when it comes to money, but have tried to kind of stay in this stream of, of Jesus' words that, that, that seem to go in the direction of, of investment and treasure, and where is it that we are, are putting our treasure, and, and who are we being rich toward? Are we being rich toward ourselves or to God, uh, as he kind of posed to us in the first story of this series? And so sometimes, uh, as I'm gathering information uh, for sermons, it takes me to all kinds of different places. And this story, this text, uh, this sermon was no different, uh, including a, a story about Mikhail Borgachev, which we may get to later in the sermon. If we don't, you can ask me about it later if you're curious, but we may get back to that at the end. Uh, but I want to jump right into uh, the scripture this morning, and then I'll make some kind of introductory comments. After that, so if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 19. We're going to pick up in verse 16. This is a story that you may recognize. It's a story that is often taught and, and preached on when we're talking about money. So I thought we can't do a series about Jesus' words on money without talking about the guy that, that we have coined uh, the rich young ruler. And so Matthew 19, we're going to pick up. In verse 16, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Um, if I'm going to be honest, I'm just ready to be done with this story. <laughs> this story has just racked my brain this week, and I couldn't sleep last night. And um, I think it's another story that we just at least for me, I'll just speak for myself, I don't really know what all to do with it. I think it's one that's tough to really get our arms around, similar to some other stories we've looked at in this series. Um, 
And, and it's a story that appears in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And when you, especially if you kind of take all three of the accounts, it just adds to the complexities of the story. So for instance, uh, all three kind of have their own flavors of how they present it. And in Mark's account, uh, after the man says, hey, I've, I've kept all this stuff, right before Jesus says, all right, go and sell all your possessions, Mark says, Jesus looked at the man and loved him. Uh, and so if you read the other accounts, we can kind of create this, this image of this rich young ruler, quote-unquote, as someone similar to some of the other religious leaders and Pharisees that we find in the Gospels who are just coming and kind of, uh, they're, they're self-aggrandizing in a way, they're, 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 they're just kind of wanting to prop themselves up, they test Jesus with their questions, things like that. But Jesus seems to see something different in this guy. He, he recognizes something within him, that, that this guy seems to be genuinely searching and sincerely questioning, all right, what, what do I have to do? Again, in Mark's flavor of it, Mark says he comes and he urgently comes before Jesus and falls down at his feet to ask this question. This is a guy who seems to be really searching for something. Uh, so it's hard to, to paint him with the same brush that we may paint others with in Scripture. And yet, it's interesting to me that as you read uh, sort of different people's thoughts on this story, um, it becomes easy for us to just kind of uh, come down really hard on this rich young guy. Uh, and, and people say things like, man, you know, he just can't give up all his stuff. He loves stuff more than Jesus. And this is the, the teaching of this story, which is all fine and good if you're reasonably confident that Jesus isn't going to come knocking on your door telling you to sell all your stuff, right? <laughs> like it's an, it's an easy position to take on the story if, if you can convince yourself, I'm not that tied to my stuff, but I'm also not going to sell all of it. So... So we have some difficulty, I think, in how we think of this story. And so it invites us, I think, to ask some questions, uh, both interpretive questions of itself, but also inward questions about ourselves. And one of those that I think kind of touches on both is, so is Jesus telling me to, to sell all my stuff? Is Jesus saying that universally eternal life necessitates that I sell all my stuff and just be someone without possessions and give it all to the poor. Um, and I think some of what we do then with this story, because whether or not we think that's theologically true, none of us think that's practically true because we all still have stuff. <laughs> um, and so I think some of what we try to do with this story then, I think you see attempts to kind of blunt the implications for our own lives. So for instance, I remember when I was growing up, some of you may have heard of, any of you ever heard about this story that there was a, a gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle? Anybody heard that? Uh, so there's this story that, that there is this gate in, in, in the wall going to Jerusalem that was called the Eye of the Needle. And the story goes that it was really hard to get a camel through it, but you could do it if you kind of got the camel into the right position and pushed him through and, you know, supposed to help with defense and all this stuff. Um, but actually the evidence of that gate doesn't come along till centuries later when this story apparently manifested of this gate in Jerusalem. It's not actually original to, to anything of the original context of the story, but seems to be one of those things that originated over time to say, well, maybe what Jesus was saying was this. But I think what he was just saying is, I think it was Jesus is, we, we don't think of Jesus as being funny, I don't think, which is a shame because I think he was. But I think Jesus is trying to be comedic when he says, you've got a better chance of pushing a camel through a needle <laughs> than for a rich person to get into heaven. Which leads to the other thing I think we do with this story. Uh, I think we use it to weaponize, I think we weaponize this story against people that we see as rich. 
uh, which again are always people that have more money than I do. So we say, see, this is Jesus saying that if you're rich, that you're hopeless and you can't get into heaven. Um, all of which I don't think is very helpful in what does this story mean for me. So, what does it mean for us? Uh, and so I'll say at the beginning that I think this story on its own when, and when viewed in concert with Jesus' other teachings on money should certainly call us to question our relationship to our stuff and the ways in which we use our stuff. Uh, but instead of focusing simply on the nature of Jesus' response, uh, responses in this story today, I want to orient our time this morning more around the questions in this story because I think they lead us towards some difficult questions for ourselves. And so uh, I say that to say um, I get that I just said that we've tried to kind of blunt the narrative of this story in some ways. And so from one perspective, I think you could look at what I'm going to try to do this morning and say I'm trying to do the same thing. Uh, but, but what I simply want to do is not negate what Jesus says about money, but to look at the questions of the story and say what, what can we learn from these questions uh, and what questions may it lead us to ask about ourselves. Because I do think that questions are important, and they run throughout this story. Just in that section that we've read, there's five questions that are asked. Uh, and questions are incredibly important. And in some ways, I think we have become people, maybe this has always been the case, but especially in our culture, uh, I think we're a people of, of answers more than we are a people of questions. We want answers. Uh, Google isn't helpful in this. But if I, if I have a question, I can just go and Google any, literally anything in the world and find who knows how many answers to that question. And I think that sometimes can hinder us from really exploring things and, and pondering things and ruminating on things, things that are, are good for us to do, just to spend time with, with questions. Uh, but we don't necessarily have to do that because we, we have answers at our fingertips. Albert Einstein is quoted as saying, if I had an hour to solve a problem and my life depended on the solution, I would spend 55 minutes to determine the proper question. Um, again, I don't know if he said that, but Google said he did, so, <laughs> so that was my answer to that one. Um, but questions are important. They shape our perspective, our pursuits, our relationships, and, and we, we navigate our lives, I think if we're honest with ourselves, by the questions that we ask ourselves. Uh, when I was in college, I started out as a uh, journalism major, and so a lot of journalism is about learning to ask good questions. And so I was a sports kind of journalism track person. And one of the worst places to ask people questions is in the immediate aftermath of a sporting event. Like when you're having to ask the football player on the field about the game, like it, it doesn't matter what you ask them. They're going to say some version of, well, it was a hard-fought game and we just took it one play at a time and we never gave up and, and you know, my teammates, you know, they just hung in there and da-da-da-da-da. That's what you get. It doesn't matter what the question is. That's the answer you're going to get. Um, Except for this one game, I was covering McMurray University in Abilene, and I go out onto the field after the game. I'm just a, a college kid myself, so I'm a college kid, and now I'm talking to this college quarterback, uh, and eventually it ends up with just me and him on the field. And he was new to this, and I could tell he was nervous. And so he's nervous, I'm nervous, and we're just both kind of standing there, like, what do we do now? And so I don't even remember what question I asked him, but... It wasn't a very good one, because I didn't ask very good questions in those settings, because you always get the same answers. So the question doesn't matter. You just ask it and move on. And so he kind of looked at me, and he already told me he was nervous because he didn't know how to handle these interviews. And he asked me, he said, 
can you ask me a real question? <laughs> and I was like, uh, and he wasn't trying to be a jerk, but when you say it after the fact, that's kind of how it sounds. <laughs> and he said, like, I don't, I don't know what to say in these situations, and I don't want to say just the same old thing. So just, like, ask me a real question. And it ended up being one of the best post-game interviews I ever had. So I was like, this guy's serious about wanting to know some questions so he can give a response. And he recognized the value of, of real questions. And I think this story gives us an appreciation for real and good questions and what they tell us about ourselves. So the first one that I want us to look at uh, is the question, the first question that this man asks, and I've got it on the screen here. He comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, if we were in a class setting, I would take a minute, and I'd ask us all to just sit with this question for a minute, think about it, and then ask you, what assumptions does this question make? And so I want us to just sit with it for a, more, a minute this morning. I won't ask us to necessarily respond this morning. Uh, but just think about this question for a minute. What assumptions does this question make? What might it tell us about this man's perspective, both on life and eternal life, about himself and about God? Teacher, what good deed must I do to get eternal life? Uh, first of all, at least in my thinking about it, it assumes that there is an eternal life, which is where you have to start with what this question assumes. Uh, and it also assumes that there is some sort of behavior, behavior or deeds that I can do that will grant my entry into it. Uh, that this man seems to believe that there is a good thing he can do in order to have or to get eternal life. And so you can hear how this man's perspective is woven into this question. Part of that perspective is certainly cultural, that it was, it was common in Jewish thought to think that, that perfect adherence to the law was the way that you got or entered into eternal life. That, that, that eternal life, the entering into eternal life, lied on the other side of perfect adherence to the Torah. This was common Jewish thought. And so part of this is, is probably very cultural, that, that, that he has this understanding of, of Jewish law very similar to what others would have. But it seems like there's a personal perspective that's showing through here as well, based both on his question and, I think, on the way that Jesus will eventually respond to it. Uh, I think this man, I think we can, um, it may be a little bit of assuming, but it seems that this man has probably gained a lot of stuff by doing. And so why would eternal life be any different? If I've come to the position that I have in this life by doing, uh, by, by obtaining by doing good things, by doing things well to get where I am, why would the question of how do I get eternal life be different? Surely there's something I can do, right? There's a business model I can follow where if I do all these things, I'm going to get eternal life. And so Jesus looks at him and says, okay, if you want to be perfect, which again is an interesting phrase that only Matthew throws into his account of the story, if you want to be perfect, if you're looking for stuff to check off and you've got to fill every box, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions. And so the man went away sad because he had great wealth. And as he walks away, 
Jesus famously says, I picture just kind of he's watching the man walk away and kind of maybe just as an aside to his disciples, just says, man, you know, it's really hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Just you can hear, again, combining that with Mark's idea that, that this is a man that Jesus loved. I can, can you hear the just kind of almost brokenness in Jesus' voice? Mm, that's, that's hard. That's hard. And I think that statement is tied to two things. Uh, one is that the more stuff we have, the more likely we are to become tied to it. That the more I accumulate, the hard, harder it is to give that stuff away, the harder it is to let go of that stuff. Uh, I thought of this in conjunction. There's an interesting part at the end of this story then when Peter, who is usually the first to speak up, is like, hold on, wait a minute, Jesus, wait, we gave up all our stuff. (laughs) What's in it for us? Like, don't forget about us, Jesus. We did all this stuff you're talking about. Um, At which point, I just wonder if Jesus is like, are you kidding me, Peter? You gave up a couple of fishing nets. (laughs) Like, (laughs) ease up. (laughs) Give this guy a break. Uh, because it, the more stuff we have, the harder it is to give up. Uh, but also, the more stuff we have, the more likely we are to lose our dependency and reliance on anything outside of ourselves. Uh, this man in his own life probably doesn't have to rely on much of anyone or anything else outside of what he already has. He can probably buy anything he want, get anything he wants. probably has people who do certain things for him. And the more and more I become dependent on my own self in this life, the more likely it is that I will start to lose my appreciation for the need for a Savior for my eternal life. And so his words then, though, come as quite the shock to the disciples. Uh, Matthew tells us the disciples were greatly astonished when they heard Jesus say how difficult it was for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Because, again, from a cultural perspective, wealth was seen as a blessing. That that if you were wealthy and and, and prosperous, that means that God had shown you favor. Uh, And so, if the rich can't enter the kingdom of heaven, the disciples ask, this is the second question we'll kind of key on this morning, who then can be saved? In astonishment, they ask this. (laughs) In other words, hold on, Jesus. Like, wait a minute. If it's hard for blessed and favored people to enter the kingdom of heaven, what hope is there for the rest of us? I think it's another question that is shaped by their own experiences and perspectives. But I also think it's a little closer to the question that Jesus wants them to be asking. Because part of Jesus' point seems to be, if you're going to make it on your own, if you're going to try to make it on your own, it's going to be hard. And here's the list of perfection, and it is all-encompassing. And so it's going to be hard for you to do this on your own. In fact, it's going to be impossible. But, he says, with God, all things are possible. Uh, In Christ, recognizing one's inability to save oneself does not lead us to futility. Instead, it opens us up to the saving work of God within us. And we realize that what is impossible on our own is open to all kinds of possibilities in Christ. Uh, Jesus begins what we call the Beatitudes, which are also included in Matthew, by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And so I think the kingdom of heaven belongs to those, regardless of their income or amount of possessions, who recognize that it's not something that I can take hold of, but something to which I surrender. That the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who empty themselves in order to be filled with Christ. That it belongs to those who see deficiency not as futility, but instead as openness to the potential of God in my life. And so I think then that there is a lot of distance between these two questions. Uh, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And who then can be saved? I think there's a lot of space between those questions, and I think they're questions asked from very different perspectives. The first question leads us to thoughts about the worthiness of ourselves, and the second one leads us to thoughts about the worthiness of our Savior. The first is about what I can do, and the second is about what God can do through me. And so if our primary question about faith is, how much good stuff do I need to do to have eternal life? then at some point we're going to run up against the truth that there's not enough good stuff for me to do in order to be perfect. And at that point, what we need is a better question, regardless of how sincerely we are asking the first question. Sometimes what our souls need is not clearer answers, but instead are better questions. Uh, And so I've been thinking about this this week, and this is where it kind of just all came undone for me last night. (laughs) Because I, I, I think that is true, and I think there is an a, a aspect of this story leading us to a greater realization of grace and of our need for Jesus as our Savior and our, need, and our realization of our own deficiency to save ourselves. Um, but I also don't think that is even maybe the primary point that Jesus is making to this man. Uh, so, for instance, when Jesus tells this guy, all right, if you want to be perfect, go away and sell all your stuff. I don't think all that he's doing is getting this man to see, oh, yeah, I don't want to do that because I need my stuff. So I need grace so that I can keep my stuff and not go all the way in with Jesus. And so grace is my ticket to still hang on to my stuff and still have Jesus. I think there's a way that we can arrive at that understanding of this story. I don't know if that makes sense to you. It came to me in the shower last night, so (laughs) we'll see if it holds water, pun intended. (laughs) Um. But I think that's kind of the struggle I had with this story this week. Because like, I, I think there's teaching about grace in this story. But I also don't want to be one of the ones to water this story down to say it's just about grace. It doesn't really uh, mean that you have to ask some hard questions about your stuff. Because I think both can be in there. I think both can be true. Uh, and so here's kind of where I have arrived at with this story. Uh, and that is that moral behavior is not separate from following Christ. Uh, that those following Christ should be people who are doing good deeds and exhibiting Christ-like behavior in, in what we do, uh, in the ways we carry ourselves, in the ways we spend our money, whatever it may be. Those things are not separate from following Christ, but they are also not a substitute for following Christ. That good moral behavior alone doesn't equate discipleship, uh, and on its own, it is not the basis for experiencing eternal life. And so it becomes a question of, I think, is this something I am doing as a means to my salvation, or is it a result of my salvation? And that may sound like semantics, but I think it leads us to completely different perspectives on the ways that we live our lives and carry ourselves. Uh, And I think Jesus speaks to some of this himself. 
uh, later or earlier in Matthew, uh, in Matthew 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus repeatedly connects our behavior to our salvation and to eternal life. Uh, but he does so in a little bit of a different perspective. He says, only the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Many who will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. In other words, there's going to be people at the end who think, wait a minute, I did a lot of good stuff. And Jesus is going to say, yeah, but I don't even know who you are. Uh, You didn't do it as a form of discipleship to me. You had other motivations in mind. Paul speaks to this idea in Ephesians when he connects our good works not to our salvation, but to our being in Christ. Uh, He says this in Ephesians 2, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, So good works are a part of eternal life in Christ. Uh, But eternal life is found in Christ, not in good works. And that in response to this eternal life in Christ, we are called uh, to live a life of of discipleship uh, and doing good things as the fruit of our discipleship, not as the means of obtaining salvation. And so I think in Jesus' day, this issue is most uh, visibly connected to conversations about keeping the Torah. For us, maybe more contextually, it would be something like church attendance. Uh, That church attendance alone isn't going to make you holy, isn't going to make you a disciple of Jesus. Uh, You can show up here every Sunday morning and have great church attendance um, and not truly be a follower and disciple of Christ. Um, On the other hand, If you are truly seeking and following Christ and seeking a relationship with Him, it's going to lead you to want to participate in worship experiences and to be a part of a faith community. So discipleship and and attendance, uh, or discipleship and and participation with a church community are not separate, Um, but church participation does not equal salvation. Uh, And I think that's part of what Jesus is trying to get around to the people that are listening to him in his day. I think that's part of the point that Paul makes throughout his ministry, through his teachings. Um, and so while we could ask questions about law, about church attendance in, in, those, in that way of thinking, I think we can ask ourselves similar things about our money. That being generous with my stuff is not a means to salvation any more than holding on to all my stuff is a means to, fe- to peace and fulfillment. But I think Jesus makes clear again and again that discipleship needs to lead us to some questions about our relationship to our money and where it is that we are investing it. Uh, As I said throughout this series, uh, that Jesus seems to talk about money and possessions in terms of investing. And we see it again in this story, both in his admonition to the rich man to sell all that he has so that he'll have treasure in heaven, And then again later on in his assurance to Peter that those who have left much will receive a solid return on their investment, so to speak. 
Uh, and so to connect those ideas this morning with the idea of, of the power of questions and the questions that we ask ourselves, I want to close out today's lesson and series with an encouragement uh, for us to be willing to ask ourselves some questions about our money, about our stuff, uh, about the value that we place on it, and about where we are investing it. Uh, and to do that, I'll come back to Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, this, this sermon, if, if some of this seems disjointed, this sermon went through about 800 revisions, so I don't even know what all I've said this morning probably, but hopefully it makes some sense to you somewhere along the way. Uh, but okay, so I heard this, this story this week um, about a man named Cal Fussman. I think is how you say his last name. Uh, Cal was a longtime writer for the Inquirer magazine uh, and a, a New York Times bestselling author and has become well-known for his interviewing skills and the questions that he asks. So he's well-known for his, the, his interviews with, with all kinds of different high-profile people, from Muhammad Ali uh, to um, uh, all kinds of, of actors and, and world leaders. Uh, Jeff Bezos was one of the recent ones that he interviewed, and he's got these, these profiles with all these really influential and high-powered high people. And one of those people was Mikhail Gorbachev. And so he tells a story about he got the, the opportunity to interview uh, Borgachev when he was coming to America after Borgachev had kind of engineered this into the Cold War um, and um, this whatever bringing about of peace that he and Reagan negotiated together, apparently. Um, I'm not an expert on, on the Cold War era in American history, so I won't try to recount it, but you can go look up that stuff later <laughs> if you want. Uh, but anyways... Uh, uh, Cal lands this, this great exclusive interview with him when he's coming to America after all this takes place. And he's going to run this huge profile in, in Esquire magazine. So he says, I, I had an hour and a half to interview him. And he said, that was going to be about the amount of time I needed to really get into this man's soul and, and get out of him what I felt like I needed for this story. So he says, the day, I was either the day before or the day of the interview, he said, I get a call from the publicist who says, uh, Cal, your interview is going to be cut a little short. He's thinking, okay, you know, I've got an hour and a half. Uh, if it's cut down a little bit, it'll be okay, but I need at least an hour with him to, to get the stuff out of him, and then I need to get out of him. So he says, okay, well, how much is it going to be cut down by? He said, the publicist told me, you've got 10 minutes. He said, 10 minutes? Like, he said, I'm going to have to go through an interpreter. He said, if you, if you account for, you know, just kind of, you know, Hey, how you doing when we come into the room? And then asking the question through an interpreter, and then the interpreter answering back. And he's like, I've, I've got time for maybe one or two questions at most. It's like 10 minutes. I can't do 10 minutes. He's like, Cal, look, he's coming to America. He's got all these important people he's got to meet with. You get 10 minutes. He says, okay. So he says, I'm getting ready for this interview. Got all these questions I want to ask him. He says, I walk into the room. I look at him in the eyes, and I can tell he doesn't want to be here. <laughs> He probably has, has a thought of what question I'm going to ask him first. He probably thinks I'm first going to ask him about nuclear weapons or working with Ronald Reagan or world events or something like that. He's probably expecting some canned question, and he's going to give some canned answer. So he says, I look at him in the eyes, and I ask him, what's the most important lesson your dad ever taught you? He said he looks at me kind of surprised. <laughs> and he has to think about it for a minute. So he says, finally, he answers, and he's telling this story about his dad taking him and his family to get ice cream before his dad went off to war, that his dad had to go to war when he was little, 
He said he's remembering the emotions of their family as they're eating ice cream together before they send their dad off to war. And he says, I have this realization. He says he gets to the point in the story where, where Borgatov is, it, it's almost as if he's holding the aluminum tin of ice cream in his hands and he can see it and he can feel it and he can taste it. And he says, I have this realization as he's telling this story that this is what has drove Borgachev to, to want to end war and, and not pursue nuclear weapons. This is what has led him to a, a position of peace because he remembers what it was like to eat ice cream with his dad before his dad left his family and went off to war. He knows what war does to people. He says, I have this realization as he's holding this cup of ice cream, and I can tell that he's having the same realization, that all this is tied back to this memory in his childhood of ice cream. And so he says, the publicist comes back in. He's still telling the story. The publicist comes back in and says, all right, Cal, your 10 minutes is up. And he says, Borgatov just kind of waves him off and says, no, no, no. I want to keep talking to him. He says, I never would have gotten more time with him, and I never would have gotten that deep into his soul if I hadn't started with that question. He said, I later realized the thing that connected with that question was it was a question aimed at his heart. And when I started with his heart, he said, then I was able to get to the other stuff. And we filled up the column. It was hugely successful. But he said, I started with a question of the heart. Uh, Jesus tells us, going back to where we very first started, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, Cal says, if you're interested in asking questions of others, start with the heart. And I think the, tr the same is true of ourselves. Uh, are we willing to ask ourselves questions about our heart? Are we willing to ask ourselves questions that penetrate our heart about our stuff, about our possessions? What is it that my possessions say about my heart and what I value? What are the things that I buy tell me about what I am investing in? Questions are important. The questions that we ask ourselves are important, whether that means questions about salvation and our relationship to Jesus uh, or connected to that, the questions that we ask ourselves about our stuff and our con con connection to those things. How willing are we to ask ourselves some difficult questions about those things? And are we, uh, um, are we willing to let those penetrate our heart and make us um, examine ourselves in that way? Uh, this morning, we're going to share in a communion meal, as we always do. Um, and as we think about those things, as we share in communion, I want us to be reminded uh, that we need to be on a search for what it means to truly live out passionate and, and sold-out discipleship to Jesus. But we also have to remember that that does not come without our need for a Savior and for our need for redemption through Jesus. And at the table, we are reminded of that. We are reminded of our need for a Savior. We are reminded um, that that we are all um, incapable of our, own, of our own salvation. And that as we live out lives of discipleship to Jesus, hopefully it calls us to ask questions of ourselves, of our world, and our place in it. Uh, so if you would, let's stand as the band comes back onto stage this morning. We'll sing this song together as we think about Jesus uh, and what he means for each of us in our lives. Uh, and then we will share in communion together um, after we sing. So let's sing together.
our prayer of confession together and then share in communion. I'll pray the the parts in white, and together uh, we'll pray the parts in yellow. Our Father, we confess to each other and to you, our Creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of Christ. We often seek out the easiest paths, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable, or paths of self-centeredness. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of righteousness. We confess that we have not loved you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of light. Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of peace. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen. You may be seated.